EMS on the Mountain is an entertainment, educational and commentary product recorded by Sean and Mike and produced by them. Nothing recorded by Sean, Mike or any of the guests of the show is endorsed nor authorized by their respective employers or agencies unless explicitly outlined. All commentary and statements made are their own. Always follow your respective medical protocols. Nothing said on this platform should be considered medical direction. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Take off. Welcome, friends, to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Today, we're joined by Michael, who would like to discuss mentoring the new provider. Michael, what are your thoughts? I think you need to stop doing this like it's a soap opera. This is my my NPR voice. (laughs) Your NPR voice? It's horrible. Today on EMS on the Mountain. We get some like classical music in the background, some birds chirping or something. Or something. This is horrible. (laughs) Um, yeah. All right. So we've been talking a lot about it's now, I don't know, we're three or four episodes into 2024. And we said we were just going to talk about what we thought we wanted to talk about. What I want to talk about today is being a mentor and mentoring young providers. I feel like this is actually a, especially applicable in the wilderness setting, uh, primarily because the, I'll call it the wilderness environment, the rural environment. There's just less people doing it. And I don't know, coming up as a young medic in my day, there's usually a, a individual or two that really impacts your, your approach to things. And I thought I'd discuss some of that and then talk about how we help wilderness folks that may often be looked at as, here's the corollary. If you work for a more urban system, you get to precept for a long time. And and you often get assigned a mentor and it might take you a year to get released to independent practice. And in a lot of wilderness rural agencies, they're like, oh, great. You passed your NREMT. I guess you're released to independent practice now. Go save lives. And us older folk that have been doing this a while are really, it's in the patient's best interest and in the provider's best interest for us to properly mentor them and help them succeed, especially with the lower call volume in more rural settings and wilderness settings. Thought we'd wax poetic a little bit of like this, a little bit of like this, a little bit about this. So first uh, off, go ahead. I, I was just going to say on. that your statement about how this is certainly applies on the wilderness side a lot more than it would the urban side. And I think a lot of that has to do with, if you just look at the education model, all baseline EMS education programs are foundational in urban response settings, right? 911 in an ambulance kind of thing, right? And so from the very beginning, that's just where you're, where you're taught the baseline education is taught from is the urban setting. And so when folks first branch out into the wilderness and austere EMS side, it's 
they definitely need mentorship of, no, you don't want to carry all of that. You want to be carrying something more like this. These are the things you want to invest your time in. And these, like we've talked about so many times, these are the things you got to start thinking about as well as those other things now. That's and even, point. I think, I think Knowles, and there might be one other company that out there that runs an entry-level EMT program with a wilderness component to it. But even then, just because at the end of the day, at the end of that program, you still have to take the National Registry exam, which is 99.999% urban EMS. Mm -hmm. So even then, I don't really know how much you really learn beyond, you know, some more, I'm hoping, I haven't never taken one of those classes, a more in-depth thing on environmental emergencies kind of stuff. I don't believe they really get into too much. Might be a little bit on the evacuation and triage kind of side. Probably not a whole lot. So yeah, the, ur the urban versus wilderness. Yeah, wilderness definitely needs to have, be having a mentorship program. Not just, and I think it needs to be a little more robust in some ways mm -hmm. than an urban system, just because of, you're not just mentoring maybe a change in protocol and how your system operates in what we call the pure EMS parts of it. But if you're new to working in the backcountry, you need to learn and be mentored in all of those things as well. Yeah. I think a lot of times those that get their hooks into the wilderness game do it in their ute. They're looking for adventure, whatever the case may be. In general, I think I can make the statement that fire rescue, wilderness rescue, emergency medicine, it's a young man's game, right? But there's a lot of organizations that have a lot of places in the country where you go join a search and rescue organization, you learn some basics about carrying a litter and packaging people and all of those things. And then you decide to go pursue EMS credentialing or additional EMS credentialing. That can, it's really easy to ingrain bad habits because there's very much a cultured aspect to it. This is how we've always done it. Old Timmy, okay. Bob Smith, Jones, Miller over here. Back when he was teaching us how to tie people into a Stokes, that's how it's done. And the real, the only real innovation that's coming in that space is when vendors come out with something new to sell to an agency that doesn't have any money. Yeah. I've seen some pretty cool stuff. Just recently, you and I, no, you were not with me. I was exposed to a, basically like a, it almost looks like a lifting sheet with a built-in, like a backboard in it, almost like a KED built into a mover, like a mega mover. And it's fully hoist rated. Like you literally lay the person in it, clip a couple of buckles, oh, hook it to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Those things yeah. are cool. I've worked with them on the military side way back in the day. Of course you did. Back when they were invented for the military a hundred million years ago and they finally made it to the civilian world. Right. But if you've never seen that before, you don't know exists. And while this is not a gear talk, this is a mentorship talk. There isn't a lot of, there isn't a really good pathway to mentor people, right? Land management agencies are under-resourced. Counties mm. that have rural environments are under-resourced. And all of these combinations lead to not a really good way to do it. I will also say not a really good way to do it is not the right way of putting that. It is, it leads to no clear pathway to mentor folks. And I think you and I both know that a lot of times people 
that want to work in a wilderness setting have to pursue their own outside education and then come back to their agency. There is never, I've, I've never heard of a National Park Service paramedic program where the National Park Service like is running the paramedic program. It might have happened at some point in some far off distant land. I don't know. But if you work for a large urban system, like you're going to go to paramedic school through your employer or through the agency you're affiliated with. Wilderness providers have to go pursue training on their own. And there's no baseline to say this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. And there's no corollary back to your agency until typically after you've completed the program. Yeah. And I think you brought up a very interesting point, which made me think about this, right? The National Park Service Park Medic Program, which for those listening, if you haven't heard us discuss this before, essentially it's the Park Medic was developed many moons ago as an interim level provider. And right now, they're essentially, they get licensed at the advanced DMT level. And that's essentially a couple of differences in scope of practice. They're allowed a few extra medicines and a couple of skills that aren't on the standard AEMT scope. But beyond that, they're essentially an advanced DMT. And so the National Park Service runs this program, what is it, every other year? I believe so, yeah. Even or odd years. Either way, it doesn't matter. But here's a program for the National Park Service that still focuses predominantly on traditional EMS, right? They do give more, much more credence to environmental and altitude type injury and illness just because it is the NPS. So they do give a little bit more time when they're doing those lectures and talking about treatments and things like that. But their curriculum doesn't include three days with a patient at high altitude because you're snowed in kind of stuff. It doesn't necessarily include gear selection for backcountry work. What gear should you be carrying into the backcountry? It's still very much on that independent ranger when they go back to their home park, which could be Denali up in Alaska, or it could be the Everglades down in Florida, right? So you're looking at two completely different environments. They both got the same level of training, which is a good solid baseline, but neither one of them, until they get back to their parks, really get and education will say on how to operate within that environment if they didn't already have a very good understanding. Now you would obviously assume that a ranger aside that's working up in Alaska is very familiar with backcountry travel and equipment and everything else. Mm -hmm. Same with the guys down in the Everglades, like it's way more boat activity and stuff, right? So you'd like to think that there is, that independent ranger comes with that knowledge, but when you are that ranger who maybe you got your first job and it was down in the Everglades because that's where it was hiring and that's where you got hired on. But you've always wanted to go work out West. When you finally get to one of those Western parts with the big mountains and everything else, your everything shifts for you as far as being a backcountry provider, right? No longer is it, we just got to take a boat and maybe an ATV or this and this to get to somebody and then we're whoop, zipping them out. Now it's like, we now have to climb several thousand feet to get to them, then go through any number of rescue scenarios and evacuate your patient. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> even then, let's say it's a learning curve of you're learning by experience. You're just getting on with your local crews. Most of these parks, like you said, are under-resourced. It's not like they're going through their field training evolutions again. They're not going through a formal, you know, release process. If you or I switched urban agencies, we're going through a whole nother release process, right? Yep. We're spending several more months 
relearning, maybe relearning new sets of protocols and how people operate, taking tests, being evaluated, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We're Whereas certainly doing like, protocol tests. Yeah. So yeah, it's, Hey, welcome aboard. You got your badge. You got your gun. Hey, you might need a backpack. Think about some good boots and good luck. Godspeed. Don't let anybody die. And that's really essentially what it is. And, and, it, and I get it. It's very difficult for those folks to develop what we'll call a mentorship program, a field training thing for the wilderness EMS side specifically, just because that again is just one of many duties assigned to a national park service yeah. ranger, right? So they're in a bit of a trickier spot. The rest of us who are out there, we'll say providing support to the national park service, state parks, other just general response organizations you might be attached with or affiliated with the sheriff's department. Somebody that has a response responsibility, right? Response responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's folks like you and I with an organization that can develop a mentorship program based on traditional urban EMS. Okay. Here's the protocols you need to learn. Here are the things that are different that you really need to pay attention to. And let's start talking about the clothes you're wearing, because that's not going to get it done anymore. Right. Your big, heavy NFPA certified safety toe zip up boots, which are great around the station and running traffic coals and working within a fire department are not the most comfortable and most appropriate footwear for the backup. No, they're just not going to work. Yeah. Let's dive into this a little bit. I've got a few notes here. Um, but first and foremost, and this is a general statement for anybody mentoring providers, but. Uh, I'm going to drop it here as well. Help them succeed. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Oftentimes I find people, and this is, this permeates in a volunteer mentality. I'll use the term. It permeates more so in a volunteer agency mentality than it does in a paid agency. But I've seen this happen in both flavors of system. Oftentimes the one that is supposed to be precepting or mentoring the new provider Inadvertently, and I'm going to give everyone that's ever done this a pass and say this was not intentional, but it's not about you. If they don't know something and you do, this is your opportunity to help them learn that. You have to remember, especially if you've been doing this a long time, that the new provider only knows what the National Registry tested them against. They are not a grisly old seasoned provider. And I've had, I went through it many a year, right? For example, I'm going to use an ambulance example, but this is just as applicable in the back. I can use a backcountry example too. But the mentor or preceptor that sits in the airway seat and watches what you do and just doesn't say a darn thing is not helping. They're making you nervous. If you are the person that is just sitting there quietly, passively judging the provider that is trying to get precepted or learn or become a better provider or get released into independent practice, if you're just sitting there staring at them and then having a conversation after the fact, you're not helping. Your job is to be part of the crew, just like everyone else that is part of the crew. Now, you don't necessarily need to step in and make all the differential diagnoses decisions, but it is much more useful if, for example, you see your preceptee or your your newbie start going down the wrong path on a decision, it is much better to start asking questions and nudge them back in the right direction than it is to sit there and judge them and then just push them out of the way 
take over and say, you're doing this wrong. That doesn't help anyone. And I've seen it for years. The, I know better than you, so you better meet my standard. And if you don't meet my standard, I'm going to give you a chance. And then once you fail, I'm going to push you out of the way and take over patient care. It's a team sport, man. It's always a team sport. If you weren't precepting, it's a team sport, right? It's medicine is a team sport. If that individual was there in independent practice and you felt something else needed to be done, you would say something, right? You would engage. Hopefully, if you're a decent provider, why are we doing this to preceptees where we're just sitting idly by, not participating in the care and having a conversation? So don't do that. On the flip side, it's not about you proving that more than they do. So you do have to leave a buffer, a bit of space to allow your mentee or preceptee to think through the problem because they've not seen 130 people in DKA in the last 10 years like you have. They've seen like one, the lady on the cot in front of them at the moment. They have to draw the pictures in the map from what they were taught in school and hopefully additional education they've been pursuing outside of the minimum standard for the registry test. They have to map that back to real life and start drawing mental maps and mental pictures of, oh, doesn't always present the way the book says, or, oh, like chest pain isn't always. What do we say about chest pain in school, really? Oh, if it's a sudden crushing chest pain that doesn't change with inspiration that radiates to the left arm, it's probably an MI. You should do a 12 lead. Oh, and all, by the way, women present with atypical symptoms. It's about as deep as it goes, right? Like how many new paramedics have had grandma say, man, I just, I've got this indigestion and it won't go away. And I've had it for like a day and a half and thought, oh, that must be an MI because I know this. You got to get the experience. You got to get the exposure and you have to let, you have to give them time to think through that. So don't just sit there and judge, but I would also argue don't be so quick to just jump in and do stuff. Does that make sense? My. Yeah, no. And so I'll say there's really two different flavors that go with this, right? Especially for, I won't say just you and I, but paramedics who are also mentoring EMTs. So for my urban agency, I mentor because I'm a field training. We do call them field training advisors, which I like. You're not just a field training officer, right? You're an advisor, mm. which I think is a good mental distinction in the role of that individual. We do BLS and ALS at both the advanced DMT and paramedic level. Or if we have a rare intermediate that still shows up, that's still got to serve for some reason. And so you have to look at it at two different ways, right? And then I think you also have to take into consideration, is this someone who is a brand new EMT or a brand new paramedic, right? Because then the expectations are a little bit different than, all right, you've been an EMT for 10 years, you've volunteered or been a career person at multiple agencies, et cetera. Your baseline should already be a little bit higher. So I should expect a little more from you. Same with paramedics or any other ALS provider. With that said, a lot of times when I like to do the, depending where we're at in, a, in their mentorship process, right? If they're at a point where they are now, they've demonstrated foundational baseline, they're all good to go. And they're now essentially leading the calls until they get to a point where maybe they're in over their head or they're about to do something, we'll call it foolish. We generally don't intervene. And what I like to do is if somebody's, a little behind the power curve, maybe it's if they're supposed to be the one in charge, you try not to tell your patient like, Hey, by the way, this person's learning on you right now. So mm -hmm. be patient with them. It's not like they're a brand new 
barista at the Starbucks, right? They're, they're starting IVs and pushing medications. And a lot of patients are like, oh, whoa, what do you mean this new person doesn't know what they're doing is going to do this kind of thing, right? So I don't ever want to announce that this person is in a preceptor type situation and they're being evaluated to see if they can do this alone as an adult. So it's like, hey, hey, Mike, do you want me to start that 12 lead for you? And then just jog the memory of, oh yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Appreciate that. And even when I'm doing BLS providers, maybe I do or do not need to do severe ALS stuff with them because they're riding with me as on a medic unit, right? Not on an ambulance, a BLS truck. So it's like, hey, hey, Mike, you want me to go ahead and start that IV over here for you? And they just, they're coached into the response will always be, if I offer to do something ALS, you just say, yes, please do that for me. Knock that out for me, Bob. Yeah. And so that kind of lets them still maintain that they're in charge with the patient, but the patient is still getting the things done they need to get done. And it's not like a, hey, you think you're going to do a 12 lead on them today? Let, how about you get that going? It's yeah. just like you're saying, it's like, it's a team sport. If you see that maybe that 12 lead needs to get going sooner rather than later, because maybe you got to rule in or rule out that cardiac etiology. Yeah. And maybe they're just, they're getting a little too wrapped into maybe patient history or some other assessment piece. Sometimes, yeah, just jog the memory a little. Hey, would you like me to get the 12 lead started? Oh yeah, you get that started. And then they can go back to whatever it is they were doing. That way you're not like in the middle of patient care. Hey, Mike, stop what you're doing. You need to get the 12 lead on. We need to find out what's going on with this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, quit talking to her about last week's vacation with the grandkids. Maybe you should get a blood sugar and make sure this really is a stroke. <laughs> it's just, you got to be nice about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you got to find ways to work in your coaching where, yeah, as you're saying, just don't be a dick about it, but help them out. Because, yeah, that's the only way they're going to learn. Now. It gets even trickier, right? Because now we have to correlate this to the wilderness environment. First yeah. off, you're just not going to see a, a, a bazillion calls, right? Yeah. So step one is you have to commit some time, energy, and effort outside of running calls to do the mentorship. It's between you and your agency and the time they give you and all of the things. But if you are mentoring new people in EMS, you're going to be spending some time outside of working the patient to teach it's it just is in a in a traditional fire system typically all the learning is going on between shifts or between calls and a shift and they're happening in the station and it's during quote-unquote duty time you need to commit some of your quote-unquote duty time in wilderness mentorship to go over equipment you need to mm -hmm. schedule trainings you need to have a plan and if it is not your agency's mandate or model to do additional training, then it is incumbent upon you as the mentor to make sure that your preceptee, your mentee, your, what did you call it? Your, your, what does your agency call it? Coach. You are coaching outside of the call time because you're not going to get the volume. Secondly, there's just a lot more equipment in wilderness worlds that you got to become familiar with. You got to get it out. You got to make use of it. Mm -hmm. And third, part of the mentoring, like it's one thing to work in a, in a 
traditional, I'll call it a traditional fire environment and you've got a standard uniform, there's a lot more variation in what you should and should not be carrying and what you should and should not be bringing with you. You have to remember that these people, just because they're a new EMS provider, they may not have a ton of experience as to what they should or should not be bringing with them into the wilderness environment as well, especially younger yeah. folks, right? I've met many motivated EMT hell. We run into them from time to time, motivated providers from other worlds. And they're like, I want to do this wilderness thing. And they come out yeah. and they're like, I'm Bob fucking smarty pants. And then they realize pretty quick, oh, wait a minute. Like I need rain gear and I need an appropriate yeah. backpack and I need the right boots and I need all of these things. This is all your job. Do not expect them to show up prepared because there's a plethora of options. And you need to help them make good choices to be successful in the job. Yeah. No, and that's, and again, that goes back to the, Mike and I have received for various ride-alongs, mentorship, et cetera, providers at all levels, right? We've had mm -hmm. folks show up who are critical care transport or flight medics, et cetera, show up, like, hey, I'm interested in doing this work up here with you guys. And we're like, cool, welcome aboard. What do you know mm -hmm. about the woods? It's like, oh, I'm an avid hiker and backpacker. And it's like, excellent. What did you bring today? And sometimes it's, oh, so your little tiny day pack, which would be great for an ultralight three mile hike by yourself. That's got 12 ounces of water. And that, as we were discussing on one of the other shows earlier, your small bag of trail mix, like wh where's you got a thermal layer in there. How about a headlamp? Where's your raincoat? Are you prepared to stay overnight with us? And most of the time it's the answer is, oh yeah, no, definitely not. I wasn't thinking about that. And it's, that's cool. You know, it's cool. Yeah. So just so you know, if we get a late call, you're going to stay with the truck and we are not. And if we see you again tonight, awesome. If we don't look forward to seeing you the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had to leave a couple of people behind that way just because it gets into the later hours of the day and they didn't have the appropriate outerwear. They didn't have a headlamp just little things and they weren't really ready to be out in the woods in the dark for an extended period of time or even a short right. period of time let's be honest and it's not that they were bad people or bad providers it's just they were new to the environment then new to the wilderness aspects of wilderness ems yep. and so they took a little more coaching and mentorship and then a couple have come back and they were much more prepared the second go round. and then you can start building on the we'll call it the ems response aspects of that like you were saying it's like all right so who's going to carry the monitor bro nobody's <laughs> carrying the monitor yeah we've um, all made fun of me for that before let's go ahead and mock yeah. me now i'm fine with it <laughs> if it wasn't even like it was a smaller zoll man it was god it was it was a big old lp12 yeah it was an op12 right? this was several years ago and yeah it was it was a very short hike down the trail it wasn't a big deal but yeah there there were some lessons learned and there's some great technology and there's smaller, lighter stuff that's out there. Your agency has to have them. Ours doesn't right. One day they'll get the budget and they'll buy the stuff. But until then you got to make do with what you got. Yeah. Just his. And tell you what, Michael, make a note. I want to discuss some of these things in the backcountry again one day. Okay. You want to discuss them like you, when you and I are in the backcountry together and have a chat about them, or do you want to discuss them on the podcast for our listeners? It will do all the above. Okay. Sounds good. I'm in. So yeah, it's like you need to know, and really this is very difficult in the wilderness setting 
depending on where you work out of, right? So like for us, cell phone service is spotty at best. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you get these reports of injured or sick people out here in the woods. And the story changes like six times before we even get to a trailhead to start moving into the back country to go find and help these folks. And then when you finally get there, it's like, holy crap. This is not even remotely close to what was described in any of the dispatch updates. And if for those of us, our friends out there that ride urban trucks and you think your dispatch gets it wrong sometimes. Yeah. You yeah. got to play telephone in the wilderness environment. It is sometimes, yeah, it's shoot. Last year there was a call we were driving to and it was a DOA. Wait, no CPR in progress. Oh, wait, no, just a head injury. But it was like, yep. holy crap. The answer to that was it was basically all the above, but it's something that should not have been a very difficult call to get and receive as far as patient condition stuff. But it was, we got several updates and they were all essentially wrong until we got on scene. There's a classic one years ago, which... It's a funny story in and of itself. There was a report of a hiker who had fallen and had potentially broken both legs. Oh, yeah. And this was when a good friend of ours was going to potentially be tasked with remaining overnight because it was dark, it was cold, and it was a little, the weather was not good. And so there wasn't enough resources to do a full carry out. And so there's going to be a potential of having to do the overnight stay with a patient until the next morning when full resources could be available and we could do the carry out. Long story short, as we're sidling up, getting ready to start heading up trail, the patient who had two broken legs came hobbling by. Hobbling by. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't even sprained ankles, folks. It was, she's just tired and a little worn out from hiking a trail that was a bit more vigorous and physically demanding than was anticipated. Mm -hmm. And apparently she'd made a phone call back to a family member and was like, man, I really hurt. I'm sore all over. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get down from here. And that family member took it upon themselves to call 911 and the emergency response center and talk about how patient had broken legs and could not walk out and everything else. And so we're like, oh shit. And then it was like, oh, you, okay. Yeah. Nope. That's the trail. Keep going that way. Here's some flashlights. Don't get lost. <laughs> yeah. Have yeah. fun. Bye now. <laughs> and so. Yeah, we went from somebody with two broken legs that's going to need an extensive carryout or an overnight stay with some folks on the hill to, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, you're the hurt one. Oh, you're fine. Great. So, yeah, which circles back to the whole thing of, so what exactly do I take down trail? Yep. And this is where I will get irritable with certain providers because oh, I didn't think they were going to need that, so I didn't bring it. And when we're talking about bringing simple things like, your drugs for guys if you ever him. want to see sean pissed off like uh, just straight up grumpy use the phrase i don't know nobody said we needed to bring that so i didn't and i'm talking about your basic foundational fundamental kit as a provider right yeah not just oh we didn't think we need the full a hair traction splint so we didn't bring a hair traction splint okay don't whatever but things like you didn't bring your meds because I didn't think I would need my meds. That's a terrible answer as an ALS provider. Even if you don't yes. need your meds, 
you need to have your meds with you. Oh, I heard this was only a, a sprained ankle, so I only brought one Sam splint and a couple of ace wraps. Cool, where's the rest of your kit? I left it in the truck because I didn't want to carry it because I'm a lazy son of a bitch and it's heavy. But the takeaway here, because I'm going to bring us back to mentorship, <laughs> is circle it back, Mike. If you take that approach, your preceptee will as well. Ah, yes. Right? So you have to want to do the work. And th this is actually the next note on my list, so I'm just going to jump into it. But if you don't want to do it, put your hand up and say, I don't want to do it. Mm. There are often times where senior people are told, guess what? You're going to be a preceptor now. You're going to be a mentor <laughs> now. You're going to be a coach now. And it ain't easy. And no. don't kid yourself that it is. And if you treat it like it's easy and you don't want to invest in the new folks, you are not doing anyone a favor. You're not doing them a favor in success. You're not doing the patient a favor in proper care. And honestly, you're not doing your agency any good because you don't want to be doing that anyway. So now you're just going to make everyone grumpy. So just don't say, sorry, man, don't want to. And if your boss is like, tough shit, be like, can we talk about this? Can I convince you otherwise? Because I'm a horrible provider and I'm a bad mentor. And it turns out I shouldn't probably even have a national registry card. You pay me more, so I'm going to keep it. That's fine. Man, I probably wouldn't suggest you say that to your boss directly. But my point is, if you don't want to mentor folks, don't do it. Because yeah. worse than anything else, worse than, a, when, than uh, a mentor that doesn't know how to mentor, a mentor that doesn't have their stuff squared away, worse than all of those things is a mentor that doesn't want to be doing it. Because if you don't yeah. want to do it, you are not serving anyone. So just put your hand up and say, I don't want to do it. Figure out a yeah. way to not to, to pull the firefighter and find a way to not do it. Yeah, that's the thing is if you want to build bad providers in your agency, put them with people who don't want to teach people to do things the right way. And pretty soon you'll be flush with them. And yeah, if you're a supervisor and you're listening to this, the best way to figure out who doesn't want to do things the right way is to just listen for somebody to say at some point or look at charts and say, huh, why didn't you start that line? They didn't really need it. Or we're only so far from the hospital or it's cold and I didn't want to expose the patient. Anytime a provider is not taking the simple steps to do the things in preparation for if things get worse, that tells me right there that they are not the provider to be mentoring people on how to do the job because they're yeah. cutting corners. And the last thing you need new people to do is learn to cut corners. You need them to learn to think through the entire problem and work the whole thing soup to nuts so that they can gain the experience and think through all the problems. Otherwise you get to what uh, the 2020 guys would call, uh, the four-year medic that has seen just enough that they think they know everything, but not enough to actually have had the experience with it. And if you start cutting corners early, that's the end of that game, right? You're going to cut corners and you're going to miss stuff. And in the woods, you're probably the only one and the patient deserves better than to have stuff missed. Yeah. And I think that brings a good point too, is, you know, the full circle piece again, right? The mentor knowing what gear you need to be taking down trail, right? Mm-hmm. Which also leads to, in the wilderness, like you mentioned earlier, there's more gear. There's not just you and your med kit, but is there going to be ropes and technical rescue equipment? Just the simple Stokes basket. How do, what do we use? How do we tie a patient into this? Do we use prefabricated from the factory straps and buckles, or do we use old school webbing and do we tie them in? And if we tie them in, how do we tie them in? What mm -hmm. are the key pieces? 
because there's a difference between securing someone in a litter for a carryout and securing someone in a litter for a helicopter hoist, right? There's just a couple, there's not a lot, but there's a couple more things that you need to make sure are done right to prevent some really bad outcomes or potentially really bad outcomes. And then just other stuff, like if you're a backcountry provider and your primary role and responsibility is the EMS responder, you might not be the person who's setting up the ropes and the rigging and everything else, but you need to know enough and your mentor has to have shown you enough that you know what is right and what is wrong. Because when you go to get on that line, you want to know that it was tied in and everything was done properly because again, the life you save just might be your own. So you have to know these things as well. And so there is a lot more to the mentorship process in the wilderness thing than just these are your meds, these are your protocols, these are your fundamentals of patient care that we do here in this jurisdiction. There's so much more to it that, and this isn't going to apply to everybody in every response agency in the backcountry, but all those nuances need to be accounted for. Well, that sort of leans into the last thing I had on my list to discuss, and this may end up being a short podcast, and that's okay. Got to stop saying it's a good thing I edit these and take those words out. the The understanding of system management and incident command for a wilderness mm-hmm. provider is mm-hmm. not optional. Oftentimes, in an urban system, right? There's someone else. There's an officer. There's a captain. There's schools for those things. In a wilderness setting, everybody's got to know how to play the game. They got to know how to play the game from day one. Because it just is, right? Oftentimes, the individual with the EMS skill set, aka the credentialing, they're often looked at as also the person that needs to make the decisions for the care of the patient. And if you don't know how to operate within the world that you live in, within the ICS framework that you're, excuse me, you're operating within, you're going to struggle to provide for that patient in the best way possible. So you need to understand how your ICS system works, be able to participate in it, be able to be part of the game, because that's part of being a provider in a wilderness world. And oftentimes you may be the only one. So what do I mean by this? Everyone knows in some way, manner, shape, or form, if you're part of an agency, how to request resources, et cetera, et cetera. But do you know how to determine what's actually required to extricate this individual once the initial care is provided? Do you know what your resource request is actually going to be? The rope stuff that we keep talking about doing podcasts someday about. The air asset, determining if an air asset is useful. Who do you call or who do you ask for help with making those decisions if you don't know? These are things that are often just handled in bigger systems, right? It's just a, oh yeah, Bob or the BC of the day or whoever just makes them happen. In a wilderness environment, you have to know these things. And it, I will argue it is part of the mentor to help your, your up-and-coming providers, your new providers, get some experience in that thought process space, right? It's not just about the patient care. It's about managing the situation. And oftentimes, you have to do both. We've told stories about how I ended up as a scene commander and a primary care provider for a patient in a pretty bad way that ended up getting flown. We can tell all kinds of stories about these things. But at the end of the day, you're often in a wilderness environment, some of the only eyes and ears on the ground making decisions. And at least for a little while, you need to know how to do that as well, because patient care isn't just enough. And mentorship, as we talked about, is about teaching the holistic student. It is not just about the medicine or in paramedicine, 
everybody likes to do skills, but skills don't mean shit, right? If you cannot do a differential diagnosis and figure out what might actually be going on with your patient, look at signs and symptoms and vital signs and all of those things, you can intubate and start lines all freaking day. But if you don't have a, a mental map of what's going on with them, it's not going to much matter. Same thing applies in the wilderness. If you don't know how to do all the pieces, right? Prepare for the wilderness, understand how to have your gear set, understand that you may be there for 24 to 48 hours, understand that you need to understand how to talk to air assets, how to call in air assets, how to ask for more help, how to be told you're not getting it and improvise. It's a huge <laughs> one, right? Because oftentimes the answer is you're not getting it. You better improvise. So all of those things come into play. Yeah. I think that's all I had to say about that. So I'll stop talking now. All right. The only thing I'd offer in closing to this discussion today is if you were the mentee, if you were that person who is being mentored, you are going through some sort of mentorship program, some release process, it's also incumbent on you not to just sit there and wait for them to tell you something. Mm. You have to show an interest in it. You have to be motivated. Like, hey, can we talk about this today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's get that. Let's break out that gear. Let's do some of that. Or maybe, because this happens to me all the time too, when I have people riding with me on the regular, it's like, hey, can we do this today? Yep, let's do that today. But then call volume gets in the way and you don't get to it. And please remind me the next time we're together and we'll start off with that. Mm. And so you is the person who's also being mentored in this arena. And urban wilderness doesn't matter. You also need to show some initiative too, right? Don't just wait for your, your advisor, your coach, whatever, to grab you by the hand and lead you through this process. Because this is, especially in the wilderness and austere medicine side, you have to be a self-starter, right? There's, yep. Mike just brought up those good points. Like there's no battalion chief, there's no engine captain, there's nobody coming behind you per se that's going to start taking over a lot of these responsibilities for you or already have them in place before you even start, start your evolution. Yep. So you've got to take a little bit of an initiative. And anybody that's ever ridden with me on my urban side will know that if you show some interest and you want to learn, holy crap, I'm one of the great guys to run with because I will teach you all kinds of stuff. And sometimes we'll start going a little too deep because I will try and teach you as much as I can. But if you show up and you just drop down in that recliner all day and you don't break out your task book on your own to look at what you need to still be working on or things like that, I'm not going to help you remind you like, hey, you should get out your task book. What do you still need to work on? You want to be a big boy, big girl, released adult provider that can <laughs> provide patient care without supervision? Demonstrate that you are having interest in that. So don't, don't just uh, sit there on the couch in whatever ready room, day room, ambulance bay, office space, front of a pickup truck, wherever it is you hang out between calls, waiting for things to happen. Take advantage of it, break out books, study, talk to your advisor, say, hey, we talked a little bit about doing some single rope action. Like, what are the best anchors we could do with for that? If I'm the first one on scene and I've got my rope, what's the best anchor system for me to set up quickly so that I can get patient access? Let's talk about that. Let's go outside here. Let's get some gear and we can go look at that. Or the same thing. It's like, hey, we talked about doing a surgical crike like for those difficult airways. Hey, is there any way we can review that today? We can discuss the mechanics of it. We can go over the gear. And then if you remind me, I'll bring, we'll 
try and get in some of the training stuff next time we try and do some training cranks or something. But you've got to take an interest in it. So yep. don't just rely on your mentor to hold your hand and drag you through the process. This is, again, team sport, right? It takes both of you. You've got to want to learn and your mentor needs to want to teach. Yeah. And if that, if both of those are in place, you're going to end up with some good providers, hopefully. Yeah. All I can and think of now is it takes two to make a thing go. It takes two oh. to make it out of sight. Yeah. And I feel like I should end the podcast right there with that little ditty. <laughs> Please do. Because that was, that <laughs> uh, was terrible. Anyway, he's right. So you can sum up this entirely horrible podcast and this 45 minutes of ranting into two simple sentences. Wilderness is more than just the skills, and it is more so than just the skills than an urban environment. And if you don't want to do it, don't be a mentor, because all you're doing is screwing the next generation and your patience. So commit the time, commit the effort, know what you're doing, know how to coach. And if you want to learn more about how to coach, Google something, because you can hit me up, but I'm probably not going to answer the email right away. Busy guy. Yeah. With that, it takes two to make a thing go right, and it takes two to make it out of sight. Yeah. All right. Bye now. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard. Be safe and do good work.